When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Socrates was one of the most iconic footballers of the 20th century. Tall and thin with a black beard and talent to burn, he lit up Brazil with the 82 and 86 World Cups. But the football was only part of the story. Socrates was also a qualified doctor and political activist who campaigned endlessly for social justice in Brazil. His was a remarkable story. And Dr Socrates, Andrew Downey's biography, is a remarkable book exhaustively researched and expertly written by the Brazil-based journalist. Like all great books, there is a fascinating narrative to how it came together. This is my conversation with Andrew as he takes us back to the construction of the book and those unforgettable World Cup summers of 82 and 86. Yeah, so Andrew, if we start um, a discussion of Dr Socrates, just by, I guess, talking to the uninitiated who are, who are listening it seems barely believable that there'll be people listening to this podcast that won't actually know who, who Socrates is and the impact that he made, not just in the world of football, but in, in social and political terms as well. Rather than, than just you giving us a kind of potted history of who he is, tell us why he meant so much to you. Tell us why you felt you wanted to tell his story in the way you have done. One of my first World Cups that I really remember clearly was 1982. You know, I was a young teenager and it was a gorgeous summer. It was in Spain where it was hot. Brazil played in these beautiful yellow jerseys and it just seemed, you know, the matches were played at the end of the afternoon and it just seemed like everything was was bathed in this golden sheen. And that's what I remember that World Cup. And I remember, obviously, Scotland playing against Brazil and I remember that great midfield that played for Brazil, you know, Falcão, Zico, Socrates and Cerezo. So Socrates was always in my mind as part of that great team as he looked different, you know, he was just unusual. So I knew all that. And then when I went to Brazil, you know, when you're dealing, you know, Brazilians are mad about football and everybody obviously remembers, you know, you're always talking, it's the same as Scotland, I suppose, everybody's always talking about, you know, the old games and the old players and reminiscing and Socrates was a name that always came up and there's a huge fondness for him in Brazil because of what he did not just on the football pitch and not just because of that 1982 team but also because of you know, the leadership that he took in the early 80s where he was one of the great voices in helping Brazil go from dictatorship to democracy and so that made him a more interesting person to me. It made him. It made his story a lot more rounded than just some guy who was a great football player. Because there's millions of guys who are great football players that you could write books about. This whole new dimension about the political activism and the social activism, 
that really made him a much more attractive proposition for me and was the reason that you know I really knew that there was a, 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 a multi-layered book there, a multi-dimensional book there that, that was, worth, was worth writing. The book's called Dr Socrates and it's worth pointing out that it's called that because Socrates was actually a doctor, he was a medical doctor. Tell us a little bit about that because one of the things that comes through from the book is that football was almost seen as a bit of a distraction in his life for, for many, many years, well into a successful playing career, actually, um, because you know medicine was, to some extent, his, his passion. That's right. All through his life, Socrates, his young life, he wanted to be a doctor. He had a quite strict father who insisted that all his sons studied. He, Socrates never knew why he wanted to be a doctor, but he always wanted to be a doctor. And so this caused him a lot of conflict when he was, a, when he was younger because he knew he was, a, he was a good football player. People you know, would tell him he was a great football player and, and there was all this talk about him as he came through the ranks at Botafogo, Sao Paulo. But it's something that really couldn't happen today. When he was at Botafogo, he was studying in the morning and in the afternoon and he would occasionally train at night and he would play on a Wednesday and a Saturday or a Sunday. And the demands at that point on professional football players were just a lot less than they are now. But he really, because medicine was his passion, that was the thing that he took most seriously. He never really liked training. He never really wanted to do laps or look after his body. He studied, would turn up and he'd do a lap of the pitch at night and he'd, he had all these different ruses that he would convince the trainers that he was actually there training and doing his own thing, but he wasn't that interested. Medicine for him was the, was the thing. That's what really inspired him as a young man. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably worth talking about, going back to the football side of it, talking about the style of player that he was. I mean, I, even myself, I was born in 1978 and I don't really have a kind of first-hand sense of, of who he was as a player. Through reading the book, he, he comes across as a kind of languid, elegant midfielder, but also had the ability to score goals. Is that a kind of fair reflection? of? It is, and it's interesting that you say that because I, when I was researching this, I also never really had a firm idea of what he did on a football field or where he played on a football field more accurately. And I would often ask people know where he played and I would always get a different answer. What was, what was the most common answer? The most it? common answer would be he would play as an as either a striker or an attacking midfielder right. and you'll see I mean throughout his career he would he would sometimes he would play as an out-and-out -out striker sometimes he would play you know just a little bit deeper what they call a ponto de lanza in Brazil sometimes this is one of the vagaries of Brazilian football is that they have so many more names for positions than we do. Uh, Meio Armador, which is like, you know, a, 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 the guy who sets up the strikers. You know, there's like a Meio Campista, just guys in midfield. There's Volantius who are like a holding midfielder. And he would play them, he would play them all. And I would go back and I would look at different games to try and find out, you know, where he was playing. And obviously you couldn't, there wasn't a lot of the very early games in the mid to late 70s. These games didn't really exist, whole matches. But you look at the, for instance, at, the, the game against Russia or the Soviet Union in, the, in 1982, the first game, he plays as a he plays just in front of the defence as like a holding midfielder, mm -hmm. and that kind of perplexed me. And the, I mean, the answer to that was because Cerezo was left out of that. He was suspended for that first game, and then in the subsequent games he played a little bit further forward. And even in the game against Italy, he he goes up front at the end when they're looking to score goals. So I think the answer to that is it it really depended on on who they were playing 
what point in, uh, of his career he was at, you know what they what they wanted from the from that particular game. But the bottom line was he was a player who could almost play anywhere. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting that Cruyff does the forward to the book because that idea of total total football and the interchangeability of positions that was an ethos that he seemed to be very comfortable with because he could just he could just transition about this kind of midfield diamond and he was comfortable anywhere. Right. And it was also because you're playing in a, a, that Brazil team of 82 that was a team of almost all these players could have played anywhere. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the, the Cruyff forward, I, I thought was interesting. I wrote down a couple of comments here where he's, he's saying, like, you know, in terms of the style of play, Socrates was the opposite of Messi, who's small and quick, but Socrates didn't need speed to control the game. So it's kind of, kind of interesting insight. It seemed that Cruyff seemed to share this kind of sense of footballing intelligence with Socrates, you know, he seemed to find an empathy with him. Um, so it's an interesting choice of, of forwards. And how, how did that come about? And did they f- did Cruyff feel like there was a synergy between the two? I think he did feel there was a choice. There was a synergy between the two. Yeah, exactly because of what you say. Socrates was a guy who you know who who a thought about football and b thought about an awful lot more than football. And I think that's where the, 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 the commonality comes in. Um, it came about because Socrates' widow knew Cruyff or met Cruyff. And at this point, I'll tell you in a second how we got, in, how we got into the whole, how the book came about. Yeah. But she had, this, she had this, this text from Cruyff that was going to be the foreword to Socrates' memoir, which I'll explain in a second. But once I spoke to her and once she knew I was doing the book, she kindly gave me permission to use that as a foreword to, to Dr. Socrates. So, so I mean, that was great. Interesting getting into the process of writing it. And I think that's one thing we try and do in this series of Between the Lines is we get into the mechanics of how books are put together because there's very often fascinating stories behind that. And, I mean, I found, I was reading, like, the, the sources at the back of the book of reading your acknowledgements, and, and there's a lot of information contained therein. You mentioned this unpublished memoir um, of Socrates, um, I, I, did he write that himself? And, it, and I think you allude to complicated rights issues, the fact that it never it was never actually published. Can you tell us a bit about that? I got this book in, a, in it must have been about 2004, 2005, 2006. Uh, Yellow Jersey, who had published which I translated, said to me, do you want to translate another book? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. Who, who wrote it? And they said, it's Socrates' memoir. And I was like, fantastic, brilliant. You know, who doesn't want to write about Socrates? You know, because even back then, you know, I mean, I knew who he was and loved him and he was this iconic figure. I knew it would be interesting. So they gave me the book. They sent me the book. It had originally been written for an Italian publisher and they had bought the rights to to translate it. So I translated the book. But at the, at the time, the book just was not quite ready to be published in English because there was an awful lot about Socrates philosophizing and talking about history and talking about things that weren't directly related to games and players and the whole you know the essence of what football is and I th- and I think and the publishers agreed with me in London they said they said yeah you're right there there, there needs to be the people who are going to buy this book are going to be football fans yeah so we have to have him talking about the 82 World Cup and about the 86 World Cup and about, you know, the games and Junior and Zico and he has to be talking about that and there needed to be more of that. So what I did was I got in touch with Socrates and said, listen, there's the, the, the roots of a, a great book here. The publishers would like me, I mean, why, I, would, I actually I suggested this, why don't I sit down with you 
and we'll talk for like a day or two. I'll ask you stories about games and players and we'll wrap that into the book to give it more of a football feel. And he said, yeah, fine, great, let's do it. And I said, okay, in order to do that, what you need to do is you need to get the original contract from your Italian publisher because, and I don't understand exactly how this works in the publishing world, but the English publisher was not able to publish. They, 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 needed to, they needed to look at the contract because they couldn't publish a different book from that which the Italians had, right. had commissioned, right? Because they were going to be similar books, but different books. Anyway, Socrates was, <laughs> he was notoriously, how would I put it? He wasn't always on the ball. He wasn't always organized. Mm -hmm. So getting Socrates to actually find the contract and send the contract to me proved impossible. So for a couple of years, you know, I would call him up after six months and go, are you doing this book? And he'd go, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, sure, let me get, in, let me get this contract. And he'd call me six months later and go, yeah, yeah, guys, you know, he had this big, you know, deep, gruff voice. Hey, yeah, guys, to the man, he'd be like, you know, all right, mate, so what are we doing this? So we're going to do this book. I was like, yeah, have you got the contract? Oh, no, 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 hold on, I'll get you the contract. And this went on for a couple of years and he never got it. And then, I mean, you know, it's life, you know, you... You always think there's going to be time to do it and you know, mm -hmm. we'll get around to it. And then, you know, unfortunately he passed away and, uh, and we never got around to doing it. That's really strange that it was an Italian publisher. So the, the, the original um, commission, if you like, came from an Italian publisher. I mean, I know he played a year for Fiorentina, but I mean, it wasn't a particularly successful part of his career. But why, why did it originate in Italy? I think because by this point, you know, Socrates was always famous as a well-known leftist. He always, you know, fought for democracy and, you know, freedom and human rights and all these, you know, social, you know, in inverted commas, socialist, liberal ideas. And I think Italy is, is a kind of place where that's, you know, hugely valued. I mean, it's a kind of a, 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 a I, mean, I didn't want to, I didn't know about Italian politics, but I think they really valued that whole side of him. Okay. And even today, I mean, I notice there's been at least four books written in Italian about Socrates. So that was the reason. They, they, they held him up as this, as this you know, paragon of great ideas, you know, progressive justice, ideas, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and that was why they were so interested in him. Yeah. Okay, so obviously Socrates passes away and you're left still with a, um, a stake in the project, if you like. You still want to get a story out there. So what happens at that point? Do you then go to the family? Do you start, you know, how, how does it progress from there? Socrates passed away in December 2011 and I never really thought about it very much until after the World Cup. I was living in Brazil at this time and, you know, the years before the World Cup were, were, were busy years because we're, you know, writing about all the preparations mostly off the field. Um, but after the World Cup was over, I... You know, there was a lull and I was looking for a project. I was looking for someone to get my teeth into. And it just came to me. I just thought, you know, why not just write the biography yourself? And I went back and I read, you know, the memoir. You know, I got in touch with a few people who were close to him. And I just took the decision. My first port of call was a guy called Yuka Kifuri, who was the, at the time he was, in the, the, the 70s and 80s, he was the editor of Placard, which is, the big, uh, which was the big uh, football magazine in Brazil. And he knew Socrates at, at that time and he, was, he became very friendly with them. And they, their friendship lasted for, you know, 30 odd years. 
And I went to Juca and I said, listen, I'm thinking about writing this book. What do you think? And he said, yeah, it's a good idea. I mean, I knew Juca fairly well from, from our journalism. And he said, yeah, it's a good idea. Did you know that we were doing a book together? And I said, no, what do you mean? And he said, well, him and I, we discussed this many times. I interviewed him for God knows how many hours. I've got all this, I've got all this stuff on tape. But we never did it because one, he would tell me something and I would go away and write it that same day. So I would take all the good stuff. Uh, and B, which was really more important, he said, if a lot of stuff Socrates told me over his life and a lot of stuff I know about Socrates was as a friend, you know, not as a journalist. So he said, if I write this book, I'm going to have to, if I'm going to do this book properly, I'm going to have to tell the whole story. Mm -hmm. And he said, if I do that, then I'm going to make enemies and I'm going to make an enemy of Socrates as well because I know a lot of the stuff that was the less flattering stuff. Okay. So he says, either betray Socrates if I write all this stuff or if I don't write it, I betray the reader. And he said, it's, I don't want to do either. So I just decided this isn't the, the book that I'm going to write. I'm just not going to do it. So he said, you know, I have all this stuff. At that point, he never offered it to me. But it was always in my mind. But he, because I knew he was so close to, to Socrates and because I knew Juca fairly well, you know, he said, listen, any help you want, you know, I'm, you know I'll help you if I can. Mm -hmm. And he was a, A, he was a great source. He wasn't so much a great source as he was a great guy I could go to and say, my impressions are this, or this guy told me A, B and C. Is that right? And he would basically give me a, 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 a very honest appraisal of, you know, my take on things. He would also tell me a lot about, you know, the epoch, you know, the era of what was going on at the time because it was completely different 30 years ago. Brazil's changed a lot in that time. And so he was a real, a real help. And then as, as he, he, the, the main help that he was to me were, were two things. One, I would go and, I would often call up people. I would get the phone number of, of say, like a friend or a former teammate or, or a, you know, a guy who did TV with. And I'd call him up and say, listen, I'm doing a book on Socrates. Can, will you talk to me? And the guy would say, well, let me think about it. Call me back tomorrow. And I would call him back next again day and they'd go, okay, come around next week. And I'd go and meet the guy and they'd mention Juca. And it quickly became clear to me that these guys, when I had called them, they had called Juca and said, who's this guy, Andrew Downey? Is he serious? Can we trust him? And Juca had said yes. Right. And so he had opened a lot of doors for me. And then as time went on, you know, I would, I sent him a few of the chapters that I was doing to get his feedback. Mm -hmm. And there came a certain point where he said, listen, you know, all these interviews that I was telling you about, here you go. And he gave me, it's about 150 pages of the type transcript of all these interviews. And that was more important right. than the memoir. Mm -hmm. Because the memoir, as I said, it was a lot of, you know, philosophy and, mm. you know, it was a wee bit rambling. With interviews, you know, Socrates has Juca on hand to like bring him back to the topic and, mm. you know, get him on focus. And that was very, very useful because Juca's an intellectual. He's like, mm. he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a sociologist from, by, by, by formation. And so the two of them love to talk, but the meaning of stuff. And right. so there's that great mix of, you know, football, but going that wee bit, you know, but the, the why of the football. Mm -hmm. And so that, those 150 pages were a real, a real help to me. Yeah, it's, it sounds like you almost had to kind of win the trust of Juca in terms of the project, your vision for the project, if you like. I know you knew him beforehand and I'm sure 
maybe trusted you as an individual, but in terms of the integrity of the project that, that you wanted to to carry out, and then when 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 he saw that you were you were in it for the long haul, he was like, right, okay, this is he kind of opens the the golden treasure basically. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. He he once he read a few of the chapters and and could see that you know it was it was serious and you know a whole balanced. Uh, you know, he said, yeah, here's this here's this treasure trove. Must have been an exciting moment. To it get was all great that going home and you know, flipping through it and reading it all and you know, underlining all the stuff that I could use. And I mean, it was, it was. I mean, I, 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 like a little example of that was he asked Socrates about a farewell match. You know, what kind of we kind of say a testimonial here almost, or the equivalent of a testimonial. Yeah. Testimonial in Brazil, they have like a farewell match where, you know, it might be. Like one player, I mean, Romario did it. Rogério Ceni for Sao Paulo did it after playing a thousand games. Uh, Ronaldo did it, and they will they'll organize a game. It'll often be televised. You know, Ronaldo. I think Brazil played against Romania or Bulgaria in in, in Sao Paulo, and they had, you know, some of the it was a, the actual Brazil team. But Ronaldo came on for twenty minutes, and you know, yeah. played and all this. And they asked, they, you know, they asked Socrates, you know, do you want a farewell game like that? And he's like, no, I'm not interested. No, didn't care. Didn't want to be thinking about the past. He said, "What I wanted when I finish, I want all my pals, everybody who's meant something to me at football, you know, players, coaches, even directors. I want them all to be there. I just want them, my pals. I want like a big barbecue at the side. I want tons of beer, and I want us to have a kickabout with beer and a barbecue, and that's what I want my farewell to be. And that was a kind of it's a kind of great little." insight into just how he thought he wasn't interested in you know everyone you know 50,000 people there cheering him and you know singing his name he wanted to be with his pals and have a beer and that kind of summed up you know who Socrates was in many ways I mean in terms of the the, the nature of the biography you put together I mean interesting you reference like doing a hundred over a hundred interviews 14 towns and cities I mean this is a serious undertaking I mean when when did you start the project and when did you end it? I mean, it must have been probably years you were working in this book, putting it together. I started it at the very end of 2014 and it went until the publishers actually wanted me to finish it by the end of, the, yeah, by the end of 2015. And I said, that's not enough. Mm. I wanted longer time. So I had to deliver it by the end of July, 2016. So it was only about 18 months. You see, I was, I was quite lucky because I was working, you know, I had a part-time job that kept me in, you know, paid for my, mm. paid for my rent and my, you know, and my and my daily, you know, survived on my on, on that. So when I wasn't working doing that job, all my spare time was spent at the start researching, going through newspapers and all that kind of stuff, reading books, and then often at the weekend I would go away to, you know, Ribeirão Preto where Socrates was born. You know, I would get a bus on a, I'd get up at like five o'clock on a Thursday morning. I'd get on the bus take about four and a half hours to get there. So I'd be there by, you know, by about one o'clock. You know, I'd line up an interview or two on the Thursday afternoon, have an interview or two on the, on the Friday, maybe see a match on the Saturday or, or get another couple of interviews in on the Saturday and then go home on a Sunday. And I'd be home on a Sunday afternoon. Often there would be, because he played for, for uh, Botafogo from Ribeirão, which is, is said about four and a half hours from Sao Paulo, there's a lot of people, a lot of these old players were scattered about in Sao Paulo. So there's a lot of them, you know, I would get in touch with them and they'd say, I'd say, can I come out on Saturday or Sunday? And some of them would say, yeah, come out, you know, just come out and have lunch or something. And so quite a few of them on a Sunday, I'd get on a bus early on a Sunday morning, go out there, 
you know, we'd sit around and have a few beers and, you know, barbecue or whatever and talk. And then when we're finished at the end of the afternoon, I'd go back and it would be, and I did that, you know, probably a dozen times. Went to Italy for a week to, to, to Florence to, to talk to people at Fiorentina. And then, you know, I used to live in Rio. He spent a couple of years in Rio, so I would go there. A lot of the old Brazil players are still there. You know, Santos. Santos is only like an hour and a half from, from Sao Paulo, so that's easy to get there in a day and back. Mm-hmm. You know, I was lucky because I had the part-time job that enabled me to survive and then just spent the rest of my time doing Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The book. I think the non-football stuff is fascinating. The Corinthians democracy. I mean, we could do a podcast on its own about about that sort of stuff, about his political ideals and and uh, how he was so frontline about expressing them as well. I think there's a beautiful spirit permeates the whole book. About you know you're touching on that about he just wants to be together with his friends and um, the the humility and the lack of ego that he approaches life. I think come through really strongly. I mean, this is the kind of World Cup series that we're doing, so I'm going to try and keep it focused to that unfortunately but I think in terms of like the maybe the pinnacle of his career or the, or the moment where his talent finds its full expression would be at the uh, 1982 World Cup which is obviously has personal significance to you I think that story is kind of beautifully told in the book I mean it was really interesting that he has this life where football is almost secondary sometimes to medicine but also just to enjoying life but not in 1982 because that is when the shutters come down and it was really interesting where, it, where there's a line in the book where, he, where you say you know he decided to to give up smoking in 1982 and this was like a, a huge life decision for, for yeah. Socrates you know yeah. um, Zico talks about finally you saw the athlete within in right. 1982 he manages to batten down the hatches and say no this is my moment in time that must have been a really interesting part of the book to piece together how he approached that because it was a real kind of boot camp, wasn't it? And it's fascinating that you know a guy like him who really never took life very seriously just decided for really the only time in his life. I mean, you can essentially say it was the only time in his life where he said, "I'm giving up all the you know the frippery. I'm giving up cigarettes. I'm stopping drinking. The things that make me happy." I'm giving them up because for one, for this one time, I am going to dedicate myself entirely, 100% seriously to playing football. And it was a struggle for him. It was a real struggle for him because, you know, he just never trained. And anybody who's played football, you know, knows if, you're, if you've not trained and you all of a sudden have to train seriously, it's tough. And imagine, you know, this, uh, uh, you know, at the, at the highest level. The other thing back then... It's not like now in the World Cup where the season ends in, you know, the end of, end of May and you have two and a half weeks, three weeks with the, with the national team before the World Cup starts, mm-hmm. or at least in training 
with the national team before the World Cup starts. Back then, they got three or four months together. And those three or four months were spent doing essentially a, a, a form of a pre-season training. So they were, you know, they were made to run around the pitch ten times and do all this. And Socrates was was thrown up. I mean, it was just too much for him. And all the other players would, you know, take the mick out of them. You know, Zico, Socrates would be at the front of the group running around the pitch. And Zico would be like, hey, what's this? We've never seen Socrates at the front of the group running around the, running the pitch before. Who is that boy? Who is the, the boy with the, you know, the scraggly beard? It looks like Socrates. Can he be him? So they, I mean, they knew, they understood, you know, how serious it was for him. And I think that had a, an effect on on all the other players because when a guy like Socrates starts taking football seriously then you know you know he led by example I mean you know that if he's taking it seriously for once in his life then I've got to start taking it seriously yeah that's interesting and there was a sense that this was a golden generation as well because you know we think of the great names like um, Zico, Eder, Falcao and it's always become a bit of a cliche the kind of golden generation thing isn't it um, with certain nations at certain times but that was a real coming together like that in time wasn't it in 1982 it was, and and they were all they were all of that age. They were all at their peak. You know, all these players that you mentioned, they were all between twenty five and thirty, and I think they all realised that this was their big chance. Remember, Brazil hadn't won the World Cup since nineteen seventy, which was you know a drought for them at that point because they won at fifty eight, won at sixty two, missed out sixty six, then seventy. After missing out seventy four and seventy eight, that was like the longest drought they had gone since the since the the nineteen fifties. So Brazil had come at this point, Brazil at this point thought that they were the greatest team in the world in the, 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 the World Cup. If, if not they're right, then it was something that they had to be challenging for. This was, this was the big thing for them and they, this was accentuated by the fact that over the last couple of years, they had, since Tele Santana had, had taken over, they had won, I think it was 33 out of 35 games or something. They'd only lost twice and each time they lost it was just by one goal. They'd come to Europe the year before They'd beaten West Germany, they'd beaten England, and they'd beaten France, who were three of the you know best teams in the world at the time. So they were on this wave of confidence, and Brazilians at home, I mean, they were by far the favourites. I mean, you know, you, you read, you know, I think it was, was it, who was the England manager? Uh, was it Ron Greenwood? I can't remember who it was anyway. The England manager, and I think it was Helmut Schoen, the general manager, they were saying, listen, this team is something special. This is the mm -hmm. team that's the favourites, and we're going to have to start you know, up in our game if we're going to compete with Brazil. So Brazil went to the World Cup thinking that they were going to win, believing that they were going to win, and the fans at home really believed that they were going to win, perhaps a wee bit too much. I think they were maybe a wee bit overconfident. When you compare that, especially with 86, when they went, you know, they were under a cloud, they hadn't done very well in the lead-up to it, there was all this chopping and changing up right until the last minute, and yet the team wasn't as well remembered as 82, but they performed every bit as well. Yeah, I mean, we talked on the uh, touched on the total football stuff earlier on, and, and there was a, a little element of that as well. I think the the quote was um, Socrates called the style of play like organized chaos, and that was that that kind of style of play was emerging as well with that team. Is that right? Well, they were just they were all just so talented. I mean, they could all just play anywhere on the field, and they were all quite comfortable playing anywhere on the field. I mean, they all just liked the ball. Mm -hmm. I mean, remember Junior, who was you know fullback. Is there any fullbacks? I mean, how many fullbacks have you seen that were as comfortable on the ball and could do, you know, could do the things that he could do? I mean, Leandro was the other fullback. He is also a name that is, he doesn't get quite as much uh, attention as as the midfield. Mm -hmm. But Falcão, Zico. I mean, Zico was 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 the best player on the team. But they were all Eder, as you said. Eder is another guy that doesn't get a, a lot of attention. But you know, if you go if you go back and look at any of these games, he's the guy who 
you know, was one of the best players on the team in the 82 World Cup. So they, they, they were all very confident on the ball and they all, you know, they all knew what they were doing. Yeah, the reason I bring that up is because I think we need to come back to it when we get to the Italy game. But the, the first game was a bit of a classic for Socrates against USSR. They go 1-0 down. Socrates scores with about not that long to go maybe about 15 minutes to go yeah. um, there's a great quote in the book where he says I put everything into my shot uh, it wasn't a goal it was an endless orgasm <laughs> such a Socrates quote and it also plays into that whole Socrates legend you know the whole thing about him being the guy who smokes and drinks and you know goes out with all these women and that whole you know lush yeah. kind of personality and that plays into it as well yeah comparing football to sex <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there was something about Socrates as an icon as well. I mean, just very tall. He had the beard. Um, you refer to him as like the captain of cool. I think that's totally right. He just he just had that kind of iconic stature, didn't he? Within that, team. He, had, he had that kind of plasticity about him. Yeah, he just he looked weird, but the weirdness was elegant. He had that because he was so slow and so languid, and you know, I think if he had that, you know, a Scottish player who was like just as slow and just as language, you wouldn't refer to him as being, you know, iconic. You know, he kind of just looked different. I think because the Brazilian, you know, we, you know, give them that wee bit extra credit and it just because it's a cool place and a cool country and the whole kind of, that whole kind of Brazilian, you know, Brazilian adage, as they, as they say. Going back quickly to the USSR game, Brazil were very, very lucky in that game. I mean, you watch the whole game again, Russia were the better team. They got denied a clear, clear, clear penalty. Perhaps two, depending on who you talk to, but one, Louisine just goes up and basically paws the ball away as if it was basketball and the referee never gave it. Brazil were very, very lucky, but they came back from it. They built after that, but it was a, it was a rocky start for them. Um, game two um, was obviously a relatively painful one from, from our perspective because it involved Scotland and I, I wouldn't say it was a classic glorious failure, but amazingly... Scotland opened the scoring in that game with one of the greatest goals in Scottish football history by, by David Neri. I don't know if it was a commentator or um, maybe it was just somebody I know, but uh, I remember it once being described, David Neri's goal, as, as if we'd towel-whipped King Kong because we, we got them angry. And that was the worst thing you could do because it, the narrative of the game that unfolded was, um, was all Brazil. But it was quite interesting like reading the, the, the lead-up to the game because Socrates kind of flips between two different viewpoints. He's, I think he initially he says he, he thinks Scotland might be better than the USSR and then he accuses them of kind of being long-ball British football-style players. So I, I don't really know where he was coming from with that. Did you ever get to the bottom of was he just playing a bit of mind games or was he just being Socrates? I think he was just being Socrates. I don't even think it went as far as being mind games. I just no. think, you know, that's what he thought at the, on that day and that's what he said. It was a, it was an interesting game from from obviously the perspective of them going to go behind. But also, in my mind, I, I thought, well, Scotland score and then they get annihilated. But not really quite that simple. Brazil equalised, but at half-time there was quite a bit of discord in the, the Brazil dressing room, is that right? Zico was really angry at half-time. Zico threatened to come off. I, what you need to remember is in that game, this was the first game that uh, the, the, the classic midfield that we know, Cerezo, Zico, Falcão and Socrates, it was the first time they had played together in a full match for years because Cerezo had been had been suspended for the for the first game against the, the USSR, and so there was there was a little bit of discord about who was going to be playing on the right in midfield, and Zico complained at half time that he was the only one on the right, and he said, "Listen, 
if you guys aren't going to come back and start helping me out, I'm, I want to be taken off. And they, they obviously got the message because they came out and, I mean, they scored, I think, three minutes in the second half and then it was a bit of a canter for them. But, I mean, it's, that's quite a, a bold statement from, from Zico to say you're not, you're not working hard enough. I mean, second game of the World Cup, guys aren't pulling their weight. I mean, does that point to a, you know, a potential fatal flaw that can back, to, can back to haunt them, do you think? Or, I mean, what lies at the heart of, of that? You know, Socrates was the was the captain, but Zico was the best player. And I think all the other players, where they looked up to Socrates as the captain, I think a lot of them looked up to Zico as the best player. You know, Zico was a hard worker. He was a, you know, he wasn't he wasn't a player who suffered fools gladly. You know, he demanded hundred percent. You also have to remember in this World Cup that, you know, we again we we romanticise Brazil in '82, but they went behind against the Soviet Union. And they, you know, they 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 won the game even though they weren't the, they weren't the better team. They, they they were were behind against Scotland. Next game was a was was easy. They were behind against Italy as well. So they were a team that how do you, how do you say? It? I mean, they were far from perfect. Yeah, they were far from. They made up for their defensive flaws with a, by their attacking, their attacking brilliance. It, it does seem that there was perhaps some kind of level of complacency within their psyche. I mean, there's, there's a bit in the book where um, Socrates like talking about how how he might lift the trophy. Like actually the, the mechanics of like, rather than doing the Carlos Alberto single lift, he was fight, you know, wanting to find a way where they could all lift it. Like, but this is like, this is like in, yeah. the, in the group stage. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute, mate, yeah. you know? You know, I, I, I remember reading this when I was doing the research, and it, and it did strike me that it was pretty presumptuous. But first of all, Brazilians are presumptuous when it comes to football. Yeah. I mean, they do believe that they're going to go to every World Cup and win the World Cup. I mean, the, the, the error there, I think, was, was, it was talking about it so openly. But it, A, it shows how presumptuous they are, but B, it just shows you know, how confident they were. And I went to, to Joka Kafuri and, and, I, and, I, and I spoke to him about this at the time and I said, what do you think about this? Him, you know, was, this not, was this not him getting ahead of himself? And he said, his take on it was that it was Socrates, it was, it was him discussing how he wanted to get everyone involved in lifting the World Cup. Because that's what he was talking about. He, he, was, he, was, he wasn't yeah. saying, it wasn't just about how he would lift the cup, it was about... I don't want to lift the cup myself as yeah, a captain. Right. I want everyone on the team to lift the cup at the same time. Mm-hmm. And Zuka reckoned it was him trying to a trial balloon, you know, getting it out there to see, you know, what kind of feedback there would be, how the whole team together would lift the World Cup, you know, as one. That's what it was more about than actually, you know, the yeah. the, the, the arrogance of it. Yeah, I mean, there's a very noble sentiment behind it, but just the fact that he was willing to come out and say it at that stage, you're like, maybe it's just, uh, you know... I think if you did it today, you'd be absolutely hammered. You would be hammered, exactly. You know, but um, it's a different time. Yeah. So they finished top of the group. Interesting, like the second round, I didn't even realise this, but this is a little, the second round was a little kind of round robin between Argentina, Italy and Brazil. Uh, and then they obviously beat Argentina comfortably 3-1. Uh, and then this Italy game, um, you must have spent a long time looking into that game because it's one of the most classic games in, in World Cup history, you could argue. I mean, that was the... That was one of the most interesting things for me because, I mean, I think I spoke to ten. I spoke to ten of the eleven players who were on the team and a couple of the subs. Everyone remembers it. You know, some of them are no that keen on talking about it. 
But as a football fan, you know, who grew up in the 80s, you know, watching this game and remembering it, you know, it's like a dream come true to, to sit opposite Zico and I went up to Leandro and I was a, a, a B&B, you know, by the beach, north of Rio. And so I go up to his place and sit, and sit by the beach and talk to him. And Junior goes to the same bar in Copacabana every Friday with his brother for a, and his pals for a drink. So, you know, I go and talk, sit in, sit in a bar in Copacabana talking with Junior. And you kind of pinch myself. I've got Zico on my speed dial kind of thing, you know. <laughs> so it was, it was just great fun. And, and I think, to me, the most interesting part of that whole... 3-2 story of the, the Italy game is that Socrates was just never keen to watch it. He never really watched it again until the 1990s when he was in, he happened to be in Japan and he's in Japan visiting an old pal of his and they're sitting in a bar one night in Tokyo and it's about, the bar was called Amazonia, it was a Brazilian bar. So they're sitting there in the middle of the, in the middle of the night, two or three in the morning and Socrates says, I just happened to look up at the telly and what's on the telly? It's the, it's Brazil against Italy in 1982 and he says, I oh, couldn't you believe it? And he said, I sat there and I watched every minute and he said, what a brilliant match, what a fantastic game. But that was the first time he had, he had been forced to watch the whole game again, he had just avoided it. Yeah, and do you think it was the, the, the kind of this organised chaos thing kind of coming back to haunt them? It seemed like the Italians had a very strategic approach to that game and kind of probably just done them tactically, do you think? I, I, mean, I mean, there's maybe an element of that, but I think what you have to remember is Italy had been pretty dire up in, in that World Cup so far. They had played their first three group games and they'd drawn them all. And the only way they went through was because they had drawn one of the games 1-1. And I think it was Cameroon. Because they had scored one more goal than Cameroon, they had qualified. So Italy had been rubbish. Paolo Rossi had been had come back after two years out and he hadn't scored a goal yet. And they hadn't been particular. They had beaten Argentina, but they hadn't been, you know, outstanding. And Brazil had kind of turned on the style. I mean, they scored four against Scotland. They scored four against New Zealand. They scored three against Argentina and were like a class above Argentina, who were the World Cup champions at that point. And so Brazil were obviously going into this favourites. They had been watching it. They, they, they thought they were favourites. And, and there was a, a wee bit, there was a bit of debate before the game because Falcão played it for Roma. And he said, listen, maybe we, should, maybe we should start off, you know, a wee bit tight, you know, play a wee bit deep, just see how the Italians are going to play it. And, and he was kind of shouted down by the other players who just said, listen, we play the way we play. We've beaten all the best teams in the world. We're going great. You know, we can't betray our, our ideals. We need to play the way that we play. And not just that, if Brazil had lost by playing defensively, yeah. they would have been absolutely massacred. They, their life wouldn't have been worth living once they got back to Brazil. Mm -hmm. Because people would have said, you've beaten teams attacking you know, for years, and now you lose because you've been de because you've been defensive. They would they would never have recovered, and so a lot of the Brazilian players said to me, "Listen, if we played that game a hundred times, we would have won it ninety nine times." Yeah, and that was just the one time. And I think that that's my take on it. I I think you can examine it and you can try and come up with reasons, but sometimes these things just happen. And I just think it was one of these days where it just didn't happen for Brazil. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that that thing about whether you you change your style of play for a particular opponent. It kind of cuts to the heart of the whole Brazilian ethos. It was like, well, we just we just do our thing. We just uh, and there's something quite romantic about the fact that they just no 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 we'll just do our thing. And then unfortunately, that was the one day in a hundred that wasn't enough. But I think if it had gone on for another five minutes or ten yeah. minutes, Brazil would have scored. And it would have been yeah. three three, and you know Italy might have scored another one. It might have been four three. It might have gone on that way. But I mean, I yeah. think it, Brazil were always going to score goals. Yeah. I just think they came up against an, an Italy that were inspired and 
Yeah. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's, no matter how good you are, somebody's going to be just that wee bit better. And it, there was obviously a bit of a fallout from, from that afterwards where, you know, some recriminations, but it didn't seem like there was an outcry over, like, why, you know, p- people were... There was also a, a sense of serious disappointment, but I didn't think there was, there, was, there was too much of, like, well, why didn't we do something else? I think No, no, I mean, countries like Brazil, countries like Italy... You know, where they take their football very seriously. Sometimes when you lose, you come home and they're throwing rotten tomatoes at you and, and you know, the press is, is, is slagging you off. But there wasn't really a lot of that in Brazil in 82 because I think most people realised that it was, as I said, it was just one of these things. Brazil had, you know, had, had, had played well, had come up against a, a better team on the day. It was just one of those things. And so if there was any recriminations, it was there was a wee bit criticism of of... Cerezo was a wee bit criticism. The defence, you know, the goalkeeper was kind of looked at, you know, as the weak link. Maybe, maybe I think all these things are all a wee bit unfair. But there was no widespread criticism as compared to say, you know, there wasn't a big fall guy as in say 2010 where Felipe Melo got sent off or you know Julio Cesar started crying. That kind of thing never happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to kind of bookend Socrates's World Cup career, if you like, and. and four years later in Mexico. Um, there's a completely different feeling about the whole thing. It's, it's obvious that that golden generation has slightly passed. The youngsters that are coming in the other end are not perhaps of the same quality. You wouldn't call it a damp squib, but there's just there's not the same energy surrounding the build-up and the tournament itself. And and then uh, ultimately, you know, they, they don't they don't reach their reach their target anyway. I think though, because, maybe because nineteen eighty two was such an iconic team, I think we look at eighty six as as a slightly lesser team. When I went into when I went into do the research for this, I I had not realised that to me I always had in my head that the eighty two team and the eighty six team were kind of on a level because they were the two the two main World Cups as as. That I watched as a teenager, and the two that I most remember as 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 uh, you know as a kid. And when uh, I did the research, you know, almost everybody was delighted to talk about '82, and everybody remembers '82. And yet '86, I mean, there was no, I mean, there was no books written about it in Brazil. There was no great fondness for that team. The, the, it was just it was a, a definite uh, like rift, or was a definite you know wall between the '82 team. And the 86 team. And yet, when you look at the statistics, when you look at the numbers, I'm, I'm de- very definitely not one of these people who's into past stats and possession and all this kind of stuff. When you just look at the goals, for example, Brazil never lost a goal in the three group games and I think it was their, you know, their last 16 or their quarter-final match. In their quarter-final match in the 86 World Cup, they hadn't lost a goal and the, the first time they lost a goal was when they lost a goal to France in, the, you know, in, in, in that game. Yeah. And, it, and Brazil had played... Maybe not as well as an 82 team, but they weren't a lot worse. That 86 match against France is one of the classic World Cup games. I mean, it's all on YouTube. If anybody wants to go watch it, it's, it's brilliant from start to finish. And not just that, Brazil were even more unlucky in 86 than they were in 82 because they went out on penalties. First of all, Zico missed a penalty in regulation time that would have put them through and they deserved to go through. And in the penalties, Socrates missed his penalty and Julio Cesar missed his. There was one goal, France scored one goal where the ball hit the post. The goalie dives, it comes off the post, hits the goalie on the back and bounces back into the net. You know, if you're going to win the World Cup, these things 
go your way. Yeah. If if it's not your day, the rebounds go against you, and these these details go against you, and that's really what the way it was in '86. And I think a lot of people forget, you know, how good that '86 team was. <clears throat> Probably the the fact that Argentina and Maradona had such a iconic tournament as well. It kind of eclipses everything else, doesn't it? Uh, they also had, they didn't have as many household names. I mean, a lot of these players that played in '82, they 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 never went on to such great things at their clubs in general. Generally, uh, there's a few of them where you know Careca, for example, and Muller did very well. But the great players from '82 were all past their best. You also had players Alemão, Silas. There are no players that you really. No, the, the names didn't trip off the tongue in '86 like they did in 1982. Yeah. Okay, I just want to wrap up by. Talking about the, the impact that the books had, and people write great books. I'm always hoping that it, it gets a great audience. Um, you know, we're, we're sitting um, looking at a bookshelf where the, the hardback is of Dr. Socrates is there, the book's out in paperback. Um, have you had nice feedback from it? You know, what has been the reaction to the book since it's come out? The two, two things that have surprised me about the books since it came out one is that it's never been published in Portuguese. It's been published and translated into French. It's French and it's been translated into Italian, Polish and Turkish. So it kind of surprised me a little bit that there hasn't been more interest in, in Brazil. Or even in the Spanish-speaking countries, uh, that's been a wee bit of a surprise. And the other thing is that a lot of people have said to me, you know, they said to me halfway through the book, oh, I'm loving it, great, fantastic character, really great. And then they get to the end of the book and they say, you know, I'm kind of disappointed with Socrates or I feel, I think a wee bit less of him now. That's because at the end of the book, you know, his life kind of fell away a little bit. It was, a, it, you know, he never really found a purpose, you know, in his, in his, in his final years. And a lot of his, you know, his final years were taken up, you know, enjoying himself, drinking, and, you know, and he died obviously from cirrhosis of the liver through, through, mm. through years of hard drinking. And I think people were disappointed that the man who was so... You know, influential, both on and off the field, especially off the field. You know, earlier in his life, didn't he go on to make more of an impact? And I think a lot of people, it's not even just the disappointed. I think a lot of kind of people felt kind of let down. Mm -hmm. You know, when you admire somebody like that, and then they don't live up to your expectations in the end. I think people, some people, felt a bit, a little bit let let down. And one of the things I try to do in the book is at the end I have a you know an epilogue. Where I talk about the last, his last day, the day he dies, mm -hmm. because the day he dies is a Sunday in December, and his body he dies early in the morning of that Sunday, and his body is taken to Ribeirão Preto where he's buried. It's almost exactly the same time that he's been buried, and the other side of the state in Sao Paulo, in the city of Sao Paulo, Corinthians are playing Palmeiras, and Corinthians, his old club, only need you know point to win the title. And, you know, the fans are at the stadium, you know, fans are crying, fans are chanting his name, you know, they're raising their, their clenched fists like he used to do. So I tried to make that, you know, a little bit more of a, of a, a eulogy to him to try and lift people after that, you know, the disappointing, you know, let down the last few years. And, and did he not say as well that he, he always wanted to die on, on the day that, that Corinthians won the league title? That's that right? the legend. And, yeah. And, and that's that's the way it happened. You know, he said, "I want to die on the day, yeah. the day Corinthians win win a title." But I think I, mean, I think it was nice. It was a great end to work it like that. But I, I, going back to the, the the after years, if you like, and, and this descent into alcoholism and stuff. I mean, football fans can sometimes 
run the risk of wanting to buy into the myth. They want the myth. They don't want the reality, right? But I felt, you know, but as a biographer, that's not your job to present the myth. You have to, you know, get into that. These years where where he's descending, and you do it, it's quite suffocating because as a reader, you feel like you're descending into this um, world of alcohol and bad living and addiction, and that comes through quite strongly, and it's quite difficult to read. Mm. But but that's your job as a biographer, isn't it? It's not to prevent present this unvarnished myth of a man. I went at this from the from the from the moment I started. I mean, I knew what his final years were like, and I knew that he he let people down. I knew there was this other side to to this great man who did this these great public acts, you know, as a Democrat and as a fighter for social justice. I knew that on his person in his personal life he was, you know, he had some some issues, but it, it just it just as a contrarian maybe and as a journalist for sure, mm-hmm. it just never occurred to me to gloss over that. No, and and I do. I mean, we all read biographies of famous people and I, and I, and I often I, I, I'm disappointed when the, I didn't see more of this yeah. of this you know warts and all I think a lot of I read, you, read, you do read a lot of books where it's they're, they're, they're obviously by you know the books admire the figure and I always think that when you get that other side of the character it makes them a wee, a wee bit more a wee bit more human but I know I, I mean I know from read their feedback I know it, that reading about that is disappointing a lot of people and it's a shame you know I wish that the you know it's just a shame yeah Watson it's a great book and uh, thanks very much for your time today Andrew it's been a pleasure thank you very much Thanks to Andrew for doing this interview. Dr. Socrates, footballer, philosopher, legend is out now in paperback and ebook. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.